welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 36. Last week, I covered the place known as Gilgal and touched on the Asherah Poles, the Canaanite religious icon forbidden by Moses. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering a topic I skipped last week. In the very first episode of the podcast, I mentioned that I covered the history of the religion, warts and all. While this week's topic, child sacrifices, was never part of the Christian religion, it was important enough that Moses cautioned the Israelites against it. And, do be warned, it's an emotional subject, and you may want to shield the immature ears in the lot. I'll do my best to cover it in as much depth as necessary, trying not to step over the line. And with that caveat done, let's get started. I touched on child sacrifices in Chapter 4, Episode 5, which released just over a year ago. In that episode, I covered the Canaanite deity Moloch, but didn't go into depth on the practice. To be honest, I'm a bit hesitant considering how abhorrent the entire practice is, but Moses did mention it, and it was part of the regional culture so I'm going to do my best to tread carefully. The subject of child sacrifice made its most recent appearance in Deuteronomy 18, when Moses told the people that, No one shall be found among you who makes a son or daughter pass through fire. While this isn't a direct reference, the people surely knew what he meant. And this is from the New Revised Standard, with the King James rendering the passage essentially the same. The NIV is clearer, reading, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. This isn't the first time the subject is addressed. Deuteronomy is essentially a reiteration of Leviticus, and in that book it makes two appearances. The people are twice told not to sacrifice their children to the Canaanite deity Molech. Couple that with all of the iterations of Moses telling them to stay far far away from the entire Canaanite pantheon. And you would think they got the message. Of course, history would prove otherwise. The practice didn't only appear in the Pentateuch. Psalm 106 lists out the way some, or perhaps many, of the Israelite people adopted the practices of the Canaanites, including child sacrifice. This is another of those things you'll never hear mentioned in Sunday school. The actual text reads, They did not destroy the peoples, meaning the Canaanites, among others who inhabited the Promised Land when they crossed the Jordan. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Obviously, this is a psalm of lamentation, and a recurrent theme. But there's more, and it's way back in Genesis. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac because God commanded it of him when he was being tested. Thankfully, he wasn't required to go through with it, 
finding an ensnared ram to sacrifice instead. How should we take that command of child sacrifice? And while I try to stay away from the theological, this is somewhere on the dividing line. Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of British Mandatory Palestine, and with the perfect name to address the matter, wrote that the climax of the story, commanding Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac, is the whole point. To put an end to the ritual of child sacrifice, a practice which contradicts the morality of a perfect and giving, not a taking, monotheistic God. This is further seen when God commands Moses to have the people sacrifice the firstborn, but then tells him this does not apply to the sons of man. At the time, the practice was widespread, all over the globe, even in the Americas where the people had absolutely no contact with others conducting the same practice half a world away. Back in the Old Testament, there's a particularly disturbing story in Judges 11. Now there's an entire backstory to this, which I'm skipping over for now, but we'll cover when I get to that book. The story picks up when Jephthah was leading the Israelites in a battle against Ammon, the Ammonites. Jephthah made a vow to God that, if you, meaning God, will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. And of course, the reason I'm telling this story is that Jephthah led the Israelites to victory over the Ammonites and returned home. When he got there in Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him with trembles and while dancing. We're given additional context that she was his only child. When he saw her, he tore his clothes, probably gnashed his teeth, and was understandably upset. He then regretted the vow he had made. He tells her about the vow, and they both agree that he can't take it back. Though, she does ask for a two-month reprieve to travel through the mountains with her friends. He allows her to leave, and after two months, and surprisingly, at least to me, she returns. At this point, I'll quote from the text. Jephthah, then, quoting, did with her according to the vow he had made. Wow. Now, to be clear, when he made his vow, he said he would sacrifice whoever walked out the door, meaning a person. So, while it was his daughter, there's no indication she was a child, and she was old enough to travel without adult supervision. Either way, he vowed to sacrifice somebody. In my mind, the point of the tale is to be careful in making your vows. There are rabbinic Jewish teachers who interpret the story as Jephthah's daughter not being sacrificed, but instead forbidden to marry and remained a spinster her whole life. That seems a bit like rationalization. As to me, the text is clear. Unfortunate, but clear. On the other side of the coin, the 1st century AD Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Jephthah burned his daughter on Yahweh's altar, a quite literal interpretation of the vow. Another 1st century AD writer, 
the currently unknown, but referred to as Pseudophilo, wrote that Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt offering because he could find no priest in Israel who would cancel his vow. Overall, keep in mind that with this story, this sort of sacrifice is neither an order nor a requirement by God, but the outcome for those who vow to sacrifice humans. Be careful with your promises. In the books of 2 Kings and Jeremiah, there is the mention of a place called Tophet. The mention in 2 Kings is a passing reference to a geographic location by the same name, but even this reference recalls that children were sacrificed by the Canaanites there. The mention in Jeremiah is lengthier and reads, For the people of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house that is called by my name, defiling it. And they go on building the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no more room. There's also a mention in Isaiah where we're told Tophet has been long prepared. It has been made ready for the king, in this case, the king of Assyria. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a streaming of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Do note that another word for a stream of burning sulfur is brimstone. It should be easy to see why this place has such a bad reputation. As for the actual location, the text gives us a clue, and that's the name Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was just south of Jerusalem, essentially on the southern side of the south wall. According to Jeremiah, some Jewish people took up the practices of the Canaanites and sacrificed children, maybe their own kids, maybe others, to the Canaanite deities Molech and Baal. Some believe this may have been an extension of hell, while others think it may have led to the concept of hell. As for the latter, you'd have to ignore the earlier mentions by a different name, Sheol, told of in Genesis, or the incident in Numbers 16, when the ground swallowed up Korah and his co-conspirators, in that case, taking them down to Sheol. Back in Jeremiah, later rabbinic sources tried to explain Tophet as a smoldering garbage heap located in the valley of Hinnom. This could have been how the community disposed of its trash, and there may have been cases where already dead bodies especially those of slaves, the poor, and foreigners, were disposed of in the fire. Such a different time. Medieval Jewish writers, including the 11th century French commentator Rashi, claim that the name Tophet is a derivative of the ancient Hebrew word Toph, which means a drum. He linked this to the cries of the children who were sacrificed by the priest of Molech, these cries being masked by the sound of beating on drums or tambourines. A more modern interpretation is that Tophet may be from an Aramaic word meaning hearth, fireplace, 
or roaster. So far, though, there has been no uncovered archaeological evidence of child sacrifice found at the site. The concept of Tophet overlaps with that of Gahenna, also in the same valley. Not to digress too much, but this will only take a minute or so. In rabbinic literature, Gehenna is a destination of the wicked. To be clear, Gehenna is not hell, but originally a grave that later morphed into a sort of purgatory where a soul is judged based on his life's deeds, or rather, where the soul becomes fully aware of its own shortcomings and negative actions during life. Jewish mysticism explains it as a sort of waiting room for all souls, wicked or not. The vast majority of rabbinic literature maintains that people are not in Gehenna forever, with the longest that a Jew can be found there is said to be 11 months. Unless he was extremely wicked, then an extra month may be tacked on. Back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 23 tells us of child sacrifice. At least at this point, what was done by the Hebrews was stopped by Josiah, the king of Judah as part of his great religious reforms. Josiah ruled between 640 and 609 BC. Earlier in 2 Kings, in the third chapter, we're told of a battle between the allied kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom against the king of Moab. Up until just before the battle, Moab was paying Israel 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams as a tribute, presumably annually but they stopped. So, the allied kings were forced to assert their authority. The war waged a bit, but then the alliance was gaining the upper hand. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through, opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he got desperate. He took his firstborn son, who was next in line for the throne, and offered him up as a burnt offering on the wall to their deity, probably Baal. And a great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. In other words, the sacrifice of his son worked. Now to be clear, we're not told that his son was a child, though it's seemingly implied. And that's enough of that, at least what's in the text but I still need to cover the practice in the region. After all, this is what Moses was warning the people to stay away from. It's thought that the North African city of Carthage, at one time part of the Phoenician Empire, engaged in the practice. Plutarch, the first century AD Greek philosopher, among others, mentions this, though he infers that it had happened in the past. The thought is they were sacrificing to their version of the Canaanite deity Bel. His contemporary Diodorus wrote, and this is a quote, In former times, they had been accustomed to sacrifice to this god the noblest of their sons. But more recently, secretly buying and nurturing children, they had sent these to the sacrifice. The implication here is that the practice was continuing, but with children raised specifically for the purpose. As if that wasn't bad enough, there are modern researchers who posit that Carthaginian children were sacrificed by their parents, 
who would make a vow to kill the next child if the gods would grant them a favor. An example of such a favor would be if their shipment of goods were to arrive safely in a foreign port. He wrote much more on the subject, including how they did what they did. But I'm moving on. There are other historians who take the opposite view, and that's that the sacrifices didn't occur, at least not at Carthage and not that late in the history. Instead, they argued that the story of sacrificing children is conflated with the cremation of those that died naturally. They support this by pointing to the relatively few surviving Carthaginian texts that make no mention of the practice, though they also barely mention their religion at all, so it may be a case of having too few data sources to draw any conclusions. There is the possibility that Carthaginian child sacrifice was overemphasized by their enemy, the Romans. In this case, the Romans may have been engaging in propaganda in an attempt to make their enemies seem cruel and uncivilized. Though, and unlike the pit near Jerusalem, in Carthage, along with other Phoenician cities, the remains of young children have been uncovered in relatively large numbers. What's missing, though, is a cause of death, so even the remains remain inconclusive. What's more telling is that the cemetery where many of these are found also includes the bodies of very young children and small animals. Adding confusion to the matter is that many of the babies appear to be preterm, so the interpretation is that they were stillbirths. We likely will never have any sort of conclusive evidence in the matter, and all we're left to do is speculate. There are other sources of such sacrifices. The Islamic Quran mentions that pagan Arabians sacrificed their children to idols. And keep in mind that as the Israelites wandered, especially in Sinai, in the area south of Canaan, they certainly came across such Arabians. Across a smaller pond, in southern Europe, on the island of Crete, there is also evidence of child sacrifices, and maybe even evidence of cannibalism. And remember that the Cretans may have been the ancestors of the Philistines, who would be grouped together with the more general term of Canaanite. In the case of Crete, the evidence is more direct, including the remains of an older adolescent or young adult. The remaining details are a bit much, just know it appeared to be a ritualistic killing. There are more examples from across the globe. Africa, the Aztecs, Incas, and Maya in the Americas, prehistoric Great Britain, seemingly everywhere. But that's enough about that, and I need to keep moving on. All of that wraps up Deuteronomy 18. Chapter 19 starts out with the cities of refuge, but I covered those back in Chapter 5, Episode 4, released in October of 2019. Next in the chapter is more reiteration. Don't move boundary stones. Criminal convictions require two or three witnesses. One isn't good enough. People testifying falsely shall suffer the punishment the falsely accused was facing. The chapter ends with one of the more oft-quoted Old Testament verses, and it's usually quoted out of context. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, 
tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Given its placement in the text, this one-for-one punishment was related to what should occur when someone falsely testifies, not as permission for revenge. Moving on to chapter 20, which outlines the rules for warfare. I touched on these in the first couple of episodes of this chapter of the podcast, and they're pretty straightforward. First and foremost, don't be afraid. God is with you. The priest addresses the troops, reminding them not to be afraid and that God is with them. And given how stubborn the people had proven to be through all the years of wondering, it was no wonder they needed to be told twice. And again. So it goes for a stiff-necked people. Then, an official is to address the troops, asking a few questions that would allow certain men to head home before the fighting starts. Has anyone built a new house but not dedicated it? He should go back to his house, or he might die in the battle and another dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard but not yet enjoyed its fruit? He should go back to his house, or he might die in the battle and another be first to enjoy its fruit. Has anyone become engaged to a woman but not yet married her? He should go back to his house, or he might die in the battle and another marry her. Then, to me at least, the more surprising question of them all. Is anyone afraid or disheartened? He should go back to his house, or he might cause the heart of his comrades to melt like his own, given the probable stigma associated with it. At this point, the commanders take over. Then Moses tells them how to plan out the battle, though in a very general sense. When you come to a town to fight, first, offer it terms of peace. If the town accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you as forced labor. And in this case, since they weren't Hebrews, that meant as slaves. If the town does not submit to you peacefully, but makes war, then besiege it. After God delivers victory to you, put the men to the sword. I think that needs no interpretation. The women, children, livestock, everything can be taken as a spoil of war. At least those are the rules when they battle foreign enemies. As for the people who currently inhabit Canaan, they must all be put to death including their livestock, everything that breathes. This includes the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Surprisingly, and I mentioned this when I covered them, it does not include the Philistines, though they could have been grouped together with the Canaanites. A reason is given for this, and it's a recurrent theme. The Israelites cannot adopt their religious practices, and if they're dead, that's easier to avoid. The rules on war end with a peculiar rule. Don't cut down fruit-bearing trees, ones that produce no fruit. That wood can be used for siege works. And that's chapter 19. Chapter 20 gets us back to the litany of rules. The first is rather strange. How to deal with a murdered person found in the countryside. Essentially, a cow is sacrificed to remove the blood guilt from the nearest city. The next part quickly circles back to the last chapter. 
and it concerns women captured after the Israelites defeat their enemies. These women can be taken as a spoil and brought back to the soldier's house. She's allowed to mourn the loss of her father and mother for a month. Then the soldier, if he's still happy with her, can marry her. If at this point he's changed his mind, she's to be set free. The reason for this is that the soldier has now dishonored her. I'm pretty sure we can figure out what all of that means. The rule of the firstborn is reiterated. Even if he's the son of a wife the father doesn't like. At least we don't have to contend with those issues today. Next, Moses tells the people how to deal with a stubborn, rebellious, drunk, disobedient, glutton son, once and for all. Take him to the town elders where they can choose to stone him. The chapter wraps up with Moses telling the people that if they hang someone as capital punishment, the body must be taken down before sunrise and buried the same day. And that's the chapter. No new people, places, or things. And a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue pressing through Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week... Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.